making sure that intent is always high because that's really the only thing that I know for a fact will push some sort of adaptations. They, are, they have maximal intent and their goal is to improve their number attached to whatever exercise they're doing. That's must have for those higher level guys. and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by Bill Miller. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was, what's going on in my neck of the woods, and, you know, this the summer episodes are always a little bit shorter, at least the intros, because not a lot of variability <laughs> in my week. Generally, you know, just kind of grinding it out with the clients in the morning and absolutely love it. Uh, I've got my 8 o'clock crew, my 9 o'clock crew, my 10 o'clock crew, and then it's been really fun here the last couple of days. I've had a guy in, NFL guy, who is kind of on loan to me for a couple of days. He was in town for a wedding, so that's been a lot of fun, and it's always interesting because I don't work with as many football players as I have in the past, but when you get next to one of these dudes, I mean, they are just physical specimens, and to watch them in the weight room, I mean, I've kind of moved away from some of the pure just hanging and banging, but I still enjoy coaching people that are pushing big weights. So it's been really fun to work with him and watch him prep and get ready for the season. So that's kind of what's been going on in the gym. Definitely in my summer groove there. Kendall has been really working on her soccer game. It's been fun. Uh, She's been coming into the gym once a week and doing some work with my girl Megs, uh, who I've coached for, geez, I don't know, four, four or five years now. She's been doing just like an hour once a week with her. It's been fun watching her just over the course of, I think, three sessions now, how much better she's gotten, watching her touch improve. So that was fun. And then we actually went on Sunday, her and I, and watched Megs play in a soccer game here in town. So I think that was really fun too because as exciting as it is to watch soccer, at least for me, on TV, and you got the Euro Cup going on right now, some incredibly high-level soccer, not always as fun for somebody that's that's not as into it or isn't as excited about the game. So when you can go and you can watch it live, you can see the whole pitch, you can see people moving. Uh, I think it's it's a lot more fun for the, the more casual observer. So had a great time watching them play. She played a great game. They won 3-0. So that was really fun. Cade has been super busy as well. Last week he had ninja camp. This week he has Lego camp. So that guy's staying active and busy. Took him to the pool yesterday. Just... I mean, that guy just needs to move constantly. (laughs) So trying to keep him going. And then this week, on top of all the regular coaching hours, I know I talked about it before, but I'm actually doing a kids athletic development camp at IFAS. So it's been fun. Uh, We got five kiddos, including Kendall. So they are having a blast. And what I'm basically trying to do is every day we work on a sports skill, and then we integrate that sports skill into a game that we play. So for instance, yesterday, we worked on kicking a soccer ball and trapping a soccer ball. And then as our game, we played some actual indoor soccer, uh, which IFAST is like a little narrow tube, but our turf side is reasonably well-suited if you have smaller children to play indoor soccer. You play it off the walls, you play it off the equipment, and you just kind of go for it. So we did that yesterday. I thought yesterday was good, but then today we actually worked on throwing and catching. So, you know, we break them down, we put them on one knee. So we're basically in half kneeling, which again, showing the the value and the merit of the half kneeling position, but we're working on from half kneeling, teaching them to throw and catch. 
And then we took that into, can't play dodgeball anymore. I guess that's not really a thing. But instead, we played this game. They call it Battleship. So what we did was we took cones, put them all over, you know, uh, both sides of the gym, and then we split them up into two teams. We kept the spike balls out, and then you would either throw the spike balls or you would kick the soccer balls to knock the cones over. So, you know, I thought, oh, this will be fun. We'll play it for a little bit. I mean, these guys were having so much fun with this game. They literally played Battleship for an hour straight. So I feel like we're only two days in. I don't want to jinx us. But so far, it's been a rousing success. It's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. The time absolutely flies by. I mean, I don't think I could do this every day. Uh, just sheer energy-wise, I don't know if I could coach every day um, with that age group. But man, in limited doses like this, it is a ton of fun. So that's what's new in my neck of the woods. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome show with my guy, Bill Miller. Are you tired of struggling with sore or achy knees? Is knee pain keeping you from performing the activities you enjoy, either in the gym or just in life? And would you like to build a set of pain-free and healthy knees once and for all? If so, let's talk about my Bulletproof Knees online coaching program. You see, almost 15 years ago, I released my Bulletproof Knees manual as a resource to help people restore their knee function and get back to living their lives. And even though people were still purchasing the manual and getting great results up to a year or two ago, I decided to take it off the market because it no longer reflected my current approach to knee health and knee training. But it seems like lately I don't go a single day without coming across someone who is in or has had knee pain. Some are elite level athletes in the NBA, MLS, or NFL who need to perform at the highest level day in and day out. Others are simply gen pop folks who want to train pain-free or be able to play with their children or their grandkids. And that's why I'm taking my Bulletproof Knees coaching program and I'm taking it on. Because when done well, this is a scalable training system that can be applied to virtually anyone regardless of their goals. Now keep in mind, just because I have principles that underpin this system, this is not some cookie cutter program where everyone gets the same watered down training template. When you train with me, you're getting a customized and tailored training program that is geared towards your body and helping you achieve your goals. So if you're interested in getting your knees moving and feeling great again, please send me an email at mike at robertsontrainingsystems.com with the words bulletproof knees coaching in the subject line. I'll get back to you with all the details and we can get started as soon as you're ready. But please don't wait as I'm only taking a select number of clients in this program. Again, send that email to mike at robertsontrainingsystems.com with the words bulletproof knees coaching and we'll get started ASAP. Bill Miller trains baseball and javelin throwers remotely and in person out of Palatine, Illinois. He is particularly fond of and passionate about power development in these sports. With the help of Chris Beardsley of SNC Research, he has constructed some very effective and reliable means of developing and testing for velocity development. That's why in this show, Bill and I talk extensively about developing rotational power. We talk about how general power development early on is critical before you start getting uber specific. We discuss the assessments he uses to determine rotational power and correlations he's found between gym exercises and throwing performance. We talk about the role of using force velocity profiles to determine the needs of your athletes and look at some unique ways he's doing that with medicine ball training. 
And last but not least, we talk about the needs of younger versus more experienced athletes and how their needs evolve as their training age goes up. If you train or work with anyone who participates in a rotational sport, I think you're going to love this episode. But enough for me, let's do this. Bill, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Mike. So I train a lot of rotational athletes, mostly baseball players, a couple javelin throwers out of uh, Palatine, Illinois, a facility called Dream Big Athletics, about a half hour west of Chicago. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. And just give us a little backstory on you, man. Like what led you to the world of physical preparation or what got you started in all this? Yeah, so I, I played baseball my whole life since I could remember. Um, played football growing up as well. And I had a couple of their brothers who really got into strength training, especially like when they were in high school, I was maybe in fifth grade. And since then, I just remember being enamored by strength training, by improving your body and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, just because they were really getting into weight training in high school, I kind of wanted to just follow what my older brothers were doing, to be honest. Right. And, um, you know, and, and, and baseball was my sort of avenue to always work hard. You know, that's it's what was instilled by my parents. You know, always have something that you're passionate about and work hard at it. And uh, yeah, baseball was sort of my avenue. And I used, you know, strength training and different sort of means to get better and better at baseball. And, uh, yeah, over time, I just kind of grew a passion for it. And so I tried doing the whole independent ball route. Um, you know, trying to play professional baseball and everything, and it just didn't work out. So with all the training that I had been doing in the past, I started to grow this passion for it. So I figured, well, it's a sort of a seamless transition to go from playing to training other athletes just to kind of stay in the game. You know what I mean? Right. right. Absolutely. So where did you, what position do you play? First of all, I always love to know. I'm a left-handed, uh, lefty, lefty. So I played mostly outfield, a little bit of first base as well. Okay. Okay. And independent ball was it, huh? That's where you kind of topped out. Yeah, and and so I, I tell people I was kind of a dinosaur, like I was a contact hitter who couldn't really run fast. So <laughs> those, those type of players don't play very long in today's game. That's right. That's right. Very cool. So so talk to me about your career path a little bit. You kind of realize the the baseball route's not going to work out, but you've got this passion for working with baseball players. So like, talk to me about how you grew that or how that transformed from a passion into a career. Right. So kind of like, like I just mentioned, like I was a contact hitter and if I wanted to make it, I had to become a power hitter. I had to be a guy that was hitting balls out at a much higher clip than I did. Instead of one home runs a year, it had to be eight to 10. If I wanted to play at that, that minor league level, that next level. And I, I I never really achieved that, but you know, I, I started to grow a passion for that. Like, how do you develop more power? How can you use strength training, power training, as a, as a means of creating a more powerful body that can rotate and hit a ball out at a higher clip. Cause I was looking around, like I could deadlift the house back when I was playing, I could deadlift 550, 600. And I'm looking around at all these other little skinny guys and they're hitting the ball way farther than me. They're throwing way faster than me. I'm like, what am I missing? And right. so like, I, I recently wrote a book last summer uh, called swing fast. And, and, and that book, I wish I had that book back when I was playing, like there's, uh, the, so much of what I've learned about developing rotational power from studying golfers, different baseball players, there's a lot of strength components involved. But if you're missing that speed component, that ability to produce force at really high speeds, you're never going to be able to, to truly get everything that you can into the ball when you're hitting it. So 
that's something that I, I wish I would have trained more of back when I was playing. And, and, and I think that's what really has been my, my, my passion as of late is like, how can we develop athletes to not just be strong in the weight room, but to transfer everything to the field as well? I love that, man. I love that. Okay, so let's start really broad, and then we're going to dive in on this topic here. You're obviously big on helping rotational athletes, like you alluded to, baseball players, javelin throwers, increase their power. So what would you describe as your big rocks with regards to helping someone do that? Yeah, the, the way I like to break it down, and I have to give credit to uh, a guy named Chris Beardsley of SNC Research. I'm not sure if you mm. follow him. He's, yeah. he's a great follow. He does like all the infographics yeah. and stuff, but super smart guy. And he sort of gave me the this idea of when you're looking at an athlete and you're breaking down their kinetic sequence of their swing or their throw, look at what sort of areas are driving the movement for accelerating the movement and which areas are more stable and have to resist excessive rotation in order to transfer energy. So he calls them accelerators and decelerators. Mm. Whatever you wanted to call them, there are definitely certain areas that have to be super, super forceful at high speeds. And then there are some areas that might have to be trained to be more stable. And so I guess one of the big rocks is just hip extension power. That's mm -hmm. one that comes up all the time. If you can powerfully extend the hips, you know, the deadlift is going to be huge. Weighted jumps are huge. Your, your ability to just fire those hips powerfully. That's, I think, a big part of where ground force reaction starts. And then kind of moving up the chain, another big rock for me is core stability. Um, but the way I sort of train, I think, is a little different than what's popularized on the Internet. You know, what, what you'll see a lot of times is core stability is just, okay, I'm doing a plank for three minutes straight. Rather than, rather than that, I, what I do is I, I take a, uh, a crane scale. And or I, I've recently gotten a G strength, which is really great, too. Some sort of device to measure how much force you can produce in like an overcoming isometric. Mm -hmm. So I'm pulling as hard as I can and seeing how many pounds of force I can put in. That's huge because that that core stability, that's kind of that spot that needs to be able to rotate, rotate, rotate and then stop in order to transfer all that energy into the upper body. So that's that's kind of a second rock right there. And then just general upper body pressing and pulling like every study that I've ever looked at about upper body activity with golfers, baseball players, what have you, there's so much force that's being produced by these, you know, in the, in the pec and the lat, especially. So like, those are the big rocks. I think if you can get super, super forceful in all of those areas, you kind of lay the foundation to develop that speed down the road. If that makes sense. That, that makes perfect sense. And the way I always described it was when somebody didn't understand like the idea of like, strong, powerful, lower half with like that, that idea of core stability, I always described it as there's like force producers and then more force transmitters, mm -hmm. you know? So like, Hey man, this is like this lower half is your engine. And then that core needs to stiffen up so you can transmit and kind of finish everything through your hands and through the bat. So I 100%. love, I love that you're on that same path. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. 100%. okay. So let's dive in a bit here. In your opinion, how different is it for someone to develop rotational power Versus more general power, like you'd see in a sprint or a jump. Definitely, like at the beginner level, there's not a whole lot of difference. Like, I would say, I, honestly, like I would probably be training a 14-year-old level football player, almost very similarly to the way I'd be training a 14-year-old baseball player. There's so many similarities. I think just getting, like I've mentioned, stronger in the dead left, the press, 
the row, learning how to lunge properly and loading those and just using progressive overload. It's huge. Um, you know, obviously like the people listening are probably not looking for all the similarities. There are some key differences for sure. Um, and, and, and the one that I I'd mentioned before too, is like that rotational core strength, that stability that you need to have while you're trying to rotate and they're resisting that excess rotation. I guess that that might be one that maybe you would target that a little bit more with a beginner level baseball player. Um, be, you know, because there are some, some definitely some, uh, big gains that can be had simply by being able to rotate more forcefully and resist that rotation. Um, and then another one, obviously with baseball players, you see it all the time, shoulder and elbow problems come up all the time. So yeah. you'll likely have to work a lot more scapular mobility type exercises, a lot more, uh, shoulder stability exercises in, in general. I think like a one arm dumbbell row is a great way to attack a lot of those areas all at once. Yep. Um, but you might have to get more and more specific to the shoulder, to the elbow if needed. Um, but yeah, in all honesty, I think there's a lot more similarities and differences. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because I feel like a lot of times when people jump on like the rotational training bandwagon, they're very much all in. And it's like that's all they're doing, right? Like everything <laughs> is triplanar and you forget, like especially early on, like, hey, man, let's just build a bigger engine to start and then we can kind of make it more specific from there. Yeah, exactly. And You think about there's so many young athletes out there who have never touched the weight in the weight room. You know, they're 14, 15, 16 years old, and they've never really gone through those, those beginner gains. Like in my opinion, if you're a kid and you haven't seen like a 50 pound jump in your bench press or a 100 pound jump in your deadlift, like you have no training age in my opinion. Right. right. Like, you got to get through that, that initial phase of just creating gains upon gains upon gains in the weight room with perfect technique. Like you have to hammer out that year or two of development um, before you can really start to worry about, Oh, I want to do more med ball drills, or I want to do more of this type of, uh, of fancy type exercises. To me, that's, that's the, the basics is where you have to start. You have to get that first. Yeah. I love it, man. Okay. So following up on that theme, what tools do you use to assess someone's rotational power? And maybe when is a good time to start tracking that? Yeah. And, and so that's a really interesting topic, kind of um, answering the last question as well. Like what's different about rotational power? Like we can do all the same things a football player or a track sprinter or a basketball player might be doing in the weight room. But what I think is important is tracking like KPIs, key performance indicators. Yep. So if like a couple of the ones that I like to use, like a rotational med ball shot put throw an overhead throw with a medicine ball like a three to four pound ball just tracking how fast they can throw that into a radar gun those should be going up every month or so with their training no matter what they're doing in the weight room so if we are improving their deadlift their press their pull and all that other stuff that should transfer to those medicine ball exercises and and then with the lower body i really like doing a lot of um a lot of shorter sprints. We don't have a whole lot of room in our facility. Long sprints are great too, right. but that acceleration I think is really, really important. Like a 20 yard dash is a great thing to track. And if they're improving in that and those medicine ball throws, then you can rest assured that 
whatever you're doing in the weight room is is pushing them in the right direction. Yeah, I love that. Have you found any like really like good correlations? Because you seem like a like a tracking science kind of guy. So like, have you found like, oh, man, if we continue to see this rotational med ball throw go up that velo goes up or like what correlations have you found if you've as you've kind of dove into this? Yeah, I, I have found a few when it comes to swinging power, the rotational scoop toss where the ball is kind of down at the hip. Yeah. I can't quite on film, but um, boom, rotating and throwing it into the radar gun as fast as I can. That with like a four to six pound ball seems to be really good at correlating with swing power. And with uh, a thrower, the med ball shot put throw and the overhead throw with a light ball, like a two or a three pound ball, yeah. that seems to correlate really well with throwing. And I think that's kind of a, a good reflection of what's going on. You know, with a throw, the the end all is really just how fast can you move this? You know, how yeah. fast can you whip this arm and that five ounce ball up and around? Whereas swinging, everything's kind of interconnected. So it's a little bit more of a forceful activity, um, maybe not quite so velocity dependent, but you can see with like a six pound medicine ball, how fast you're pitching that into the radar gun. That's usually a really, really good indicator um, of, of like swinging exit velocity. So those are, those are the three that I really like to look at is rotational scoop toss, rotational shot put throw and medicine ball standing overhead throw. Yep. Um, but you know, on that topic though, I get in these sort of moods sometimes and it's, you know, like I'll have these athletes who will come in and they'll say, man, my med ball velo is up. Like, why is my throwing velocity down? Why is my exit velocity not great? And I think a lot of times people think, well, doesn't that mean that med ball velo doesn't mean anything? That's not the case. What it is instead is it's showing you where you need to focus your training more. So mm -hmm. if my med ball velo is going up and my baseball specific velo is not, then that's telling me that you have the engine, you have the power, but you're not expressing it because of a technical problem. Perhaps it's a mental problem. When you have the ball in your hand, you might be putting a death grip on the ball. There's something going on there, and now it's given us the answers. We've checked the boxes for strength and power development, but the specific technique of having that ball or bat in your hand is where you're messing up. Mm, I like that a lot. A lot of times I think of it when we start talking about this world of specificity is there's like the very general realm, right? The general training means there's what we would describe as more specific. I don't know if we're truly specific, but like more specific stuff that we can do. And then there's truly sport specific. Yeah. You know, and that's where like too often we get caught up in thinking that everything that we do is sport specific. And the only sport specific thing that they do is what they do in their sport. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I, I just had this conversation with somebody last week. If you throw this medicine ball 42 miles per hour over your head, that's good. But that doesn't guarantee you're going to be throwing 90 miles per hour. The only thing that guarantees you throw 90 is actually taking the ball and throwing it at the gun. Yeah. So what. What I think people need to understand is, you know, key performance indicators are great, but what all that's showing is that your strength training is pushing you in the right direction. Your power training, everything that you do in the in your your separate training realm from the field, it's working if those KPIs are going up. But in order to fully translate that to the field, you do still have to train your butt off in those throwing and swinging exercises and everything yep. else um, that you have to do in your sport. Like you have to play your sport 
uh, if you're going to get good at it. You know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. Okay. So I have one other follow-up question to this because I think you did a great job of, of mentioning and highlighting the fact that it's generally a light med ball. Can you talk mm-hmm. about why you prefer that? Because I know I've made the mistake of using way too heavy a med ball when I'm doing mm-hmm. throwing activities. So why do you prefer the lighter med balls? Yeah, I think the reason I like the lighter med ball is because it's giving us a stimulus that we can't get anywhere else. Like I can use, you know, so if we're looking at the force velocity spectrum, we have the force end over here with all the heavy strength training, bench press, row, deadlift, and all that other great stuff. Yep. And then over here at the other end, if we really want to maximize, like uh, Chris Beardsley calls it rate coding, the ability to fire those motor units really fast then we should be using a really, really light load. That doesn't mean that the middle of the spectrum has no goal or, or, or there is no point in doing it. Like there, I think there are some really good exercises that you can find in the middle of that force velocity curve to really gain power development. But if, we're, if our goal is speed and, and the ability to rotate the body super fast, let's just use a lighter load. It makes more sense that way. Now, there are some movements that maybe match up better with a heavier med ball something like a heavy med ball chest pass. I think that works really, really well. Um, But a lot of times I think that middle of the spectrum, you could simply do maybe like a speed bench or a speed deadlift at 40, 50% one rep max and achieve pretty decent adaptations. Like I've seen it happen, but you know, like if we're going to go at the light end and that high speed realm, let's just go all out high speed. If we're going to go force, let's go all out heavy force production. That's the way I like to look at it. Yeah. I love that, man. Okay, so let's assume young baseball player comes to you. They want to improve their rotational power to improve throwing velocity, exit velo, whatever. Where are you starting out with them? Yeah, and that's a tough one because a lot of the guys that I, I do come across in training, they've been training for years. They're these, these higher-level high school and college guys, and they're trying to get that next little bit. Mm, okay. um, but I do have a couple beginners that I'm really liking like the progress they've been making. They're like 14 years old and obviously puberty takes over. So they're going right. to get crazy wrong. <laughs> yep. um, but yeah, I would say the first things first is you, you want to be able to teach everything that you want to lay your foundation with all those weight training exercises, the lunge, the push up, the row, anything that you're doing, train it with perfect technique first. Yep. And I, I read somewhere. Um, I, I can't remember who said it, but it was perfectly said it was, if your goal is to train a certain muscle group or a certain area with an exercise and your technique is bad, that likely means that you're using other muscle groups to help get that weight up, to move that weight. So no longer are you focusing solely on training that specific area. Like the one arm dumbbell row is where I see it all the time where kids want to pop up with the upper back, extend the hip. No longer are you training those rear shoulder muscles to glide the scap the way that we want. All those sorts of so so perfect technique is where I start with with everybody and then the load will happen like everybody I know will increase five ten pounds a week five ten pounds every other week but don't I I don't like to start with anything that's super super maximal effort to get the weight up everything is pretty slow tempo and we build upon that Um, and then over time. I would say then you can begin really starting to say, okay, we're going to maybe after about a year of heavy strength training, we can start to introduce some medicine ball throws and maybe a little bit more of the plyometrics and stuff like that. But in my opinion, a lot of the the training that we do at that age is just 
make sure that they are strong and stable. Whatever they get out of their sport-specific training should be enough to develop their power as well, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. And it, it really jives with a lot of what we do at IFAST because I think the best thing you can do early on is teach a young athlete to manage their internal load first, right? Mm -hmm. Can they own their own body weight? Can they squat? Can they lunge? Can they hinge, push up, chin up, all the basic things that you said? Once they've got the foundation, then you can layer on all that force production, right? Like mm -hmm. they're right for that. And generally, if you're doing it right, a year, two, maybe three tops, you kind of max that out. And then as you kind of start to slow those gains, you add your velo stuff in and like it just brings everything together very seamlessly. I love that. Yeah. And, and uh, another way that I like to uh, put it is grab all of your low-hanging fruit first. Oh, the yeah. fruit being get your hypertrophy gains, get your force production gains, get your movement pattern gains, get all of these things first, grab as much of that fruit as you possibly can. And then as you had mentioned down the road, maybe three years down the road, you say, Hey, I've been stuck at 82 miles an hour. If I want to play in college, I got to get to 86, 87, 88. Okay. Let's start introducing some power-based exercises, some speed-based exercises and stuff like that. I think that's a really good way to go about doing it too, because now, and I've learned this about myself because I, I swing the golf club a lot. I think that when you are a more stronger, more forceful individual overall, there is a much bigger room uh, of, for growth at the velocity end of the spectrum when you begin doing those med ball based exercises. So for example, like I started out, like all I've been doing for years with my training is just bench press, deadlift, squat. Like that, <laughs> right. that's all I like. To do. You know, I'm, I'm out of playing for about four or five years now. So all I like to do is lift weights. Right. And when I started writing that book, I said, okay, I have this really cool idea. What if I started swinging a golf club and just see how many, you know, how, how much can I improve if I follow one of my own programs? Right. And I improved a ton because the program that I did was called a velocity deficient program. So if I put myself through what's called a force velocity profile, we could talk about that in a little while, but basically what it shows is, Bill, you are a big, strong guy, but you lack a lot of speed. That's the simplest way to put it. And so I start doing all these rotational med ball exercises, these slams, these med ball throws at the radar gun. And my club head speed goes up like two, three miles an hour. And I only tested club head speed once a week. That's all I would do. Wow. And it would go up and up and up every week. I'm like, this is crazy. Nobody else would make those types of gains unless they were like me where they were a super big, strong dude that lacked a ton of speed. So now my low hanging fruit, my lowest hanging fruit, I've gotten all the force production gains. My low hanging fruit is just give me as much speed based exercises as possible. Yep. And I should see really, really good results. But I feel that you have to lay that foundation of strength and hypertrophy first. Yep. If you really want those big time gains at the speed end. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so I want to circle back because you mentioned force velocity curve. I love nerding out on this stuff. So talk to me about how you're looking at that because I think you've got, I, I went through a lot of your stuff uh, leading up to the show and I feel like you do some unique things here, right? It's not just the traditional like squatting and that sort of thing. Like how do you look at somebody's force velocity curve? Yeah, and, and there's a lot of great methods for force velocity profiling out there. I know Max Schmarzo is a great guy to look at, but he's got some crazy cool tech that he can use as well. So all I have is a radar gun to work with. So what I talked with uh, Chris Beardsley, as I had mentioned previously, Chris Beardsley and I, we kind of divide, like we, we came up with this idea 
that if we throw different loaded medicine balls, like a two pound, a six pound and a 10 pound ball, if we do a sit, supine, like a, like a supine overhead throw or a sit up style throw, yep. if we do that at the radar gun with these different loads, it should show some sort of a profile. Like the bigger, stronger guys should throw the 10 pound ball pretty hard, relatively speaking. The skinny guys will throw the 10 pound ball really bad, but they'll throw the two pound ball really fast. So just it, we, we basically did it like an experiment. Like, does this show an, an expected force velocity profile? Yep. And then can it be used? And it, over time, can we retest it to see what happens? And it worked really, really well. Hmm. So this, this, this little supine throw force velocity profile, you can also use like a chest pass. I've seen other people do that as well. But just using different loaded medicine balls, equally uh, loaded uh, medicine balls, um, that, that showed that, that showed it right there, how good you are at the force end of the spectrum and how good you are at the velocity end of the spectrum. And, and, uh, yeah, I think that's, it was a really simple way to test it and yeah. it worked really, really well for us. That's awesome. Like we used to do a lot, a lot more force velocity profiling and we would take somebody through like the whole gym aware squat protocol. We do a squat and a bench and there were days it would take like damn near an hour. To get somebody mm-hmm. through a force velocity profile and say, okay, well, I mean, this is great. And if you need it, it it's worth the time. But man, it'd be really nice to just throw three different weight med balls a couple times and get the same information, right? Yeah. And, and, and obviously, like the more in-depth you get into it, the more like exercises you track as well, the more comprehensive your force velocity profile can be. And that's important as well. But I do think in a realistic setting, like you'd said, like I got you know, an hour to work with four kids today. And then the next group of four is coming in. I got to get these kids in and out. So there is a timing component there as well. Uh, But no matter what you use to test, I think so long as the the most important thing, you have to retest every three or four weeks or so. Like it's, it's so necessary. If you accumulate, you know, 15 training sessions over the course of the month, you know, you're looking at a significant amount of training that's happened can we retest in a fresh, like a fully recovered state? Maybe in, even in like after a good warmup, um, you know, if the athlete's feeling good, you could retest. Yep. Have them go through their force velocity profile again. See what happened. You know, are they shifting upwards at the velocity end? If that's happening, then maybe they should be throwing a baseball faster. Are they improving at the force end? If so, maybe they should be able to swing a bat faster. You know, there's there's different things that you should be seeing and should be expecting. And if they're not happening then maybe you need to change up your training a little bit. Uh, but for the most part, I think so long as you have a good understanding of where their weaknesses are and you just attack them like crazy, the testing should improve over time. Yeah, I love it, man. Okay, so we talked a little bit about your young kiddos and how kind of you know internal loading, external loading, building that force production Let's flip that and let's look at the other end of the continuum. Because like you mentioned, you've got some higher level athletes. They probably uh, already lifted for an extended period of time. So how does your philosophy or how does your approach change with them? And how do you get those last little bits of velo that may help them bump up or play at the next level? Yeah, and and this is where the, the testing, like test measuring everything that they do from you know, if they're lifting weights in the weight room, it's using the bar speed sensor mm. um, and, and just making sure that intent is always high. Cause that's really the only thing that I know for a fact will push some sort of adaptations. 
they are they have maximal intent and their goal is to improve their number attached to whatever exercise they're doing that's must have for those higher level guys yep you know and, and we're talking about guys who like you said been training for four plus years at this point like they have they've gotten all the low-hanging fruit first right but yeah i would say and, and then you're probably looking at a guy that's at the very least balanced in their force velocity profile they might be a little velocity deficient so i'll start to shift the volumes of training higher and higher towards the velocity realm so uh, for example, I had a guy in earlier who uh, he's like an indie ball guy, really big and strong dude. And, and what we were talking about today was, hey, when we throw the med ball, we're going to do a, a rotational shot put throw with uh, a three pound ball. And we're throwing it at the gun. And what I want you to do is do sets of three and then rest. And we're going to keep doing sets of three until your numbers drop off. Like we're going to go until we see like at least a 5% decrease. I want the volume to increase of the workloads that, that you're doing, because I think that's one of be, going to be one of the most meaningful things that you could be doing in your training to produce power. And, you know, and obviously you always want to make sure that you're continually testing to make sure that their sports specific speeds are improving, but at the very high levels, like the, the one pro hitter that I trained this off season, he was like, he wanted to increase exit velocity because he went the whole 2020 season without hitting home run. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, we want to improve your power for sure, but rather than looking at just peak exit velocity that you could rip a ball in the cage, what if we looked at how low of an effort you can give to still hit a ball out of the park? You know what I mean? How can we focus on other things that will help you become a better hitter and the power is still going to be there without you even trying? Mm -hmm. That's That was our goal, and I do think that that's something as well. As the, with the younger guys, we're looking for gains upon gains upon gains. We always want to get five miles per hour harder this year. With those higher level college and pro guys, I think a lot of it comes down to how little of an effort can you give and still hit the ball to the moon? You know what I mean? Mm. And I, I think that's really important to understand that your power training with all these med balls and stuff should enhance your ability to drive the ball without even trying. So how, okay, so this may be tough to answer and it may be totally subjective, but like, how do you measure that? Because I'm 100% on board with you. Like, I love that mm -hmm. idea. And, and we all know too, that a lot of times if you're trying to muscle something, mm -hmm. you're not fast, right? Yeah. So like, how do you measure that? Or is it just subjective on them? They're like, oh, that felt effortless and I hit it X or whatever. It's going to be a lot of that. It's going to okay. be a lot of how do you feel? Because they're such high level athletes in the first place. Yep. They are going to know what, they need to feel like to be successful in a game. But um, yeah, I, I think it's, we could also, what we did a lot of was we just tracked exit velocity off of like a machine or off of like live batting practice or something like that. And you're just tracking their average exit velocities. Hey, today was two miles an hour harder than usual. And you were, you know, you seem to be squaring balls up at the same clip or you squared up balls at a 60% rate today off a really challenging machine. That's fantastic. That shows that training is working and you're becoming a more, you know, a sound hitter. But you're also, we want that exit velocity to creep up slightly as well. Yeah, I love it, man. Okay, so I know I've got a, a young son. He's only in first grade, but he's into baseball right now. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of kids that are really getting into the sport. And they're all sold on this idea of adding 5, 8, 10 miles per hour on their fastball this summer. So really two-part question here. Number one, is that even attainable? And number two, if it is, what would you have to do to actually accomplish it? Yeah, I mean, 
is it attainable? Sure. I think anything can happen when you're a kid that's like an eighth grader that's just going through like those growth spurt stages. Like yep. you could do anything, man. <laughs> but I, something that is, I, I think that needs to be understood is anytime you gain at the velocity end of the spectrum, especially with a throw, throwing is, it wreaks havoc on your shoulder and elbow. Like, I think I was reading the other day, um, it was like an 80 mile per hour pitch at that deceleration phase was like the equivalent of having a 60 pound weight in your hand. That's how many Newtons of force it was. Oh, There's wow. something crazy, like 310 Newtons of force. Oh, and I'm like, if you're a skinny little kid and you haven't really improved strength at all in the rows and the weight or anything like that, and you're throwing, you're throwing 10 miles an hour harder, you went from 70 to 80, but your strength hasn't improved at the same clip, well, you're looking at something that you can't really handle and something is going to give. You know, yeah. the, the, the thing about the weight room is it provides so much strength and stability to the joints. I, I remember reading another study. I can't remember exactly what it was, but throwing like a, a 65 mile an hour pitch, if you didn't have all the muscle groups surrounding the UCL, the UCL would rupture with like a 65 mile per hour pitch. Yeah. So I'm like, huh, if this kid has really bad grip strength, say he can only pull 70 pounds on the grip dynamometer, we might need to improve that grip strength anytime <laughs> creates any sort of gains in throwing velocity. So that's my biggest advice. If, if I had a perfect world, I would say gain from like ages 12 and up gain three miles per hour per year. That's to me, that would be great because I know that everything that we do as you grow in the weight room and everything can kind of increase at that same level. It gets tough though. Like some kids just, they sprout like a spring bean and they get, they go up eight or 10 miles an hour. And the reality is, man, it's just, it's tough because now you're looking at them being the best pitchers on their team and their coach is going to throw them seven innings. And now yep. that throwing volume is going through the roof. So it's, it's pretty tough. Um, yeah. As we had mentioned earlier, like always grab your low hanging fruit first, the, the velocity it's going to come, it's going to come in those early developmental years. Just if you're throwing, you're playing catch long toss with your buddies, the velo is going to jump is that strength and that joint stability improving at the same clip. That's the biggest part. Yeah. I love that. And it's great advice because it sucks. I mean, I've seen this, we're not even what I would consider a baseball specific facility. We get a mm -hmm. decent amount of baseball players that come through, but when you see a 14 or 15 year old kid that's coming in off of Tommy John, that yeah. sucks, you it's know? Bad. Yeah. So it's like, Hey man, I I'm all for trying to, I don't want to say push the envelope. I'm much more in just developing these kids for the long term. Mm -hmm. And like you said, if you're following kind of that that systematic low-hanging fruit approach, you're a lot more likely to not only see consistent gains, but see them over an entire career and not just this massive spike, then they get injured and then they fall yep. off. Yeah, it is a recipe for disaster. And, and like you said, I, I can't think of how many kids I've seen come through our facility that, wow, this freshman throws 80 miles per hour. Like this kid's going to get drafted and stuff like that. And he doesn't train accordingly in the weight room. He gets overused in his games because he's their best pitcher. And then before you know it, he's a junior. He's still only throwing 82, 83. And he's getting hurt. You know, every time he picks up a ball, it's, it's his arms barking. It's like, man, it's, it's such a shame because these kids just want to play. They want to be the best on the field. They want to compete. The, the weight room is going to give you that platform to be able to continuously compete 
down the road. As long as you're training properly, um, you know, doing your one arm dumbbell rows. I'm really big also on doing a lot of slow eccentric rear shoulder based exercises. That eccentric strength is huge yep. for being handle those types of forces and, and grip strength is huge too. Like if you, if you just attack those at high intent, I think everybody will see much, much like healthier athletes at a higher clip. Yeah. I love it, man. All right, my guy, big question time. If you could alter the space time continuum and give young Bill Miller one piece of advice, what would it be? Man, I would say if this is going to sound crazy because of everything we just talked about, but I would tell young Bill Miller, don't be so enamored with the weight room that you forget your sport. You forget that your sport is high speed. You forget you're not a football player. You're not, you're not a power lifter. You're a baseball player. We have a five ounce ball in your hand. Don't forget that speed matters a lot. And I, I think I was the opposite type of kid that we were just talking about. You know, yeah. I was, I was always healthy, but I was always slow as a rock. And, right. I, and I, and I, I got better as I went along. You know, I followed a lot of West side barbell, the dynamic effort method helped me get faster sprinting and stuff like that. Like I thought it was good what I did in training, but I think I forgot that, Hey, you got to get good at baseball too. If you're not hitting the ball farther and throwing faster at the end of the year, your training might've been kind of wasting time. Yeah. And at the very least until you get to that elite level until you're Max Scherzer, you don't need velocity anymore. Um, until you get to that level, velocity does matter. And I, and I think I needed to hear that as a kid. Yeah, that's fantastic. It reminds me of a podcast by the time this actually airs, it'll have been probably six, eight weeks ago, but with Ken Vick and Ken Vick talked about, you know, we've all heard of the kiss principle. He talks mm -hmm. about the it's principle. It's the sport stupid, you know, <laughs> because so many times, you know, I mean, that's, that was like part of my thing. Like I ended up liking the weight room more than I liked the sports, you know, it's like we get so yeah. enamored in the weight room. We forget about, Hey, at the end of the day, it's all about making this kid or this this person in front of me a better athlete, not just making them <laughs> the best weight room monster possible. Yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree more. I love it. Okay, so last but not least, we've got our lightning round. Six or seven questions, fairly short in length, but your answer can be as long or short as you like. All right? Number one, what's your career highlight so far as a coach? Hmm. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is the book. Um, writing yeah. swing, like that was tough. And, and, and I, anybody who goes and writes a book and publishes it online, you have my respect because it is a lot <laughs> to put yourself out there like that. Um, and it's a lot of work too, to make sure that it's, it's good. Um, but yeah, I think that book was great. It, it got me in touch with my first pro hitter that I ever worked with this off season. He, he picked up the book, read it and reached out to me personally. So that was really cool to see. And, um, you know, there, I, I just received a lot of really nice feedback and it shows you like social media is not always guys trying to argue. There are some really good people out there as well. Yeah, that's awesome, man. OK, this one's off script. But number two, who is your favorite baseball player growing up? Ooh, growing up, I liked Will Clark and I know he's, okay. turned, out be, uh, he's turned out to be a kind of a, a not so good person off the field <laughs> and whatever. But I loved like the eye black, the left yeah. hitter up there just trying to rake and stuff yep. like that. I that's who I enamored growing up at least. Okay. Well see, so my favorite player growing up was Pete Rose. So I okay. I have I don't have a leg to stand on. I mean I had like the little VHS tape of him teaching hitting. And then yeah, I mean, he didn't turn out to be the greatest human, but he could hit the ball <laughs> pretty darn well. Yeah, exactly. All right. Number three. 
What's the biggest improvement you've ever seen in someone's velo in an off season? I let's see last year when COVID first started and we were doing a lot of outdoor training. It's crazy because when we got away from the weight room, like they still did strength training, like kind of at home on their own, but right. like guys were making some crazy gains just because they were long tossing as far as they could. And they would like do run and gun pull downs at the gun once a week. And just, I think that that consistent progress, I saw a kid gain like eight miles an hour over the course of the summer. So from maybe mid April to August, whatever that is about four months there, right. Uh, four or five months there, he gained eight miles an hour. That's the biggest jump I've ever seen. But again, that was scary stuff because this right. is a skinny, you know, freshman in college that's just trying to throw it for the gun. And I'm like, right. eh. yeah, yeah. I, I, all right, we got to get back in the weight room soon. So, yeah. so we uh, keep you safe and healthy. Well, so I was about to put like a disclaimer on that. Like it's cool, yeah. but not necessarily something we're striving for, right? Exactly. And and he went from like 85 to 93 in that time frame. Oh, wow. And it's it's cool for the radar or it's cool to show the radar gun light up on Instagram. Right. You know, cause it helps drive more athletes in the door for sure. But yeah, you're right. The disclaimer has to be there. Like, Hey, like this is some scary stuff here. Let's try to get you in the weight room and you know, become more stable and strong again. Yeah. I love it, man. Okay. Number four, if you could get every baseball coach on the planet to understand one training concept that you use with your athletes, what would that be? Whatever you're doing, try to measure it. Try to see if you can create some competition amongst your athletes and, and just try to see if you can get more intent out of whatever they're doing. I think that's a great way to go about training, especially in these power training exercises. Like the reason I started tracking um, medicine ball throws with the Raider gun, like I used to copy everything I saw from Eric Cressy online. He's the best in the world. Why wouldn't I want to try to copy what he's doing? Right. But what I see was these kids are just taking the med balls and just kind of you know, tapping it off the wall, just kind of going through the motions. And so putting the radar gun on them, it turned up the intent through the roof. And I think that matters a lot. And I think coaches probably need to measure a little bit more um, than what they do. I love it. Awesome. Okay. Number four or five, actually. Biggest mistake you see most coaches make with rotational athletes? Mm, that's a tough one. And I've run, I've, I've done this mistake, so I'll say it doing too much rotational work when there's high times of throwing and swinging as well. I mm. think what I needed to understand, and I, I kind of ran guys into this last um, sort of last winter, they were doing a lot of swinging every day. They were taking about a hundred, 120 swings and they would go and throw, they'd throw about 40, you know, 40 throws or so at pretty high intent and, and doing med ball work on top of that, didn't help at all it, it was at the very least doing nothing and at most it was causing more central nervous system fatigue and taking away from other qualities that we could have been training so understand that there's a time in the early to mid off season where med ball velo really matters a lot and then there's other times of the year where maybe you can just do it test it once a week test it every other week just to make sure you're going in the right direction but you don't have to do it every day and, and i i did that and it was a mistake for sure I love it. That's awesome, man. Okay, number six. What's the easiest win you can give someone to improve their velocity? Mm, that's a good one. Um, the easiest win, I would say, is, is just try to track something in your training. Give yourself a goal. Say, okay, I'm going to take this med ball and I'm going to throw it farther with a chest pass 
the supine overhead throw, whatever you're doing, have some sort of goal at, attached to the end of your training. And if it's something that is maybe reflective of your sport, like a medicine ball throw might be, that's a good thing to track. I love it. Okay. Number seven, last but not least, what's next for Bill Miller? So we had kind of uh, talked a little bit off camera about this, but you know, a good friend of ours, Kip Steinger, uh, we're kind of starting up these little camps. We're calling them performance combines. And, uh, you know, something that I feel can be a problem in the baseball community is showcases. I think showcases are like, you know, they're, they're a necessary evil, if you will. Right. Um, so rather than sending a kid off to a showcase and having them stand around with a hundred other kids where they throw a ball five times, I think what you could maybe do is do it like smaller, more individualized showcases. But instead of just tracking the baseball specific stuff, we track a lot of other meaningful metrics too: med ball throw exercises, mm. grip strength, external rotation strength, um, different things that you could maybe give them to show this is your profile, force velocity profile. This is where you're weak. This is where you need to train. And now give give them incentives. So rather than just saying, "Here's your numbers," you know, spend five hundred bucks with us again if you want to see us again. Right. Give retest date. And say, hey, if you are in the top percentile of kids that improve the most or something like that, we're going to give you a bat. We're going to give you a pair of cleats, something that I think could really get these travel ball kids instead of focusing solely on showcase. Now they're focusing on development. That's oh, kind of I like that. Yeah, we're going to start doing some of those this summer. And I think it could be really fun. Dude, that's awesome. I mean, I just I, I'm going to beat this drum until I'm dead. And hopefully that's a long ways down the line. But Man, we just need a bigger focus on development. There's such an emphasis on competing, which is fine. There's a time and a place for competition. There's a time and a place for showcases. But we've lost the art of development. And I hope right. we get back to that because that's what a lot of these kids desperately need. So You hit the nail on the head, yeah. And I think with these showcases too, like you look at it, if you're a kid that's throwing 77, 78, which is a lot of the kids that go to these big showcases – there are not going to be a whole lot of scholarship opportunities out there for you. So you have to make sure that you're developing to get into the realm of getting these college recruiters attention. You know what I mean? So it's, yeah. it's, it's the biggest part of the game. Yeah. I love it, man. Well, Bill, you've been amazing to chat with. Thank you so much for your time. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work that you're doing? Uh, so the book swing fast, a guide to rotational power is available on Amazon. On Instagram, I'm Bill Miller Training, all one word. And on Twitter, I'm at Bill Mills. Yeah, feel free to reach out anytime you have any questions on, on training, anything about training. I'm always down to chat. And I'm uh, very much not a judgy person online. Like, I love listening to different people's takes and stuff like that. I'm never, uh, never someone to get in Twitter arguments and that <laughs> crap. That's awesome, man. Well, again, thanks so much for your time. We'll make sure we get all those links into your show notes. And, uh, Again, man, thanks so much for coming on. For sure. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode with Bill. Really hope you enjoyed it. I found myself taking a lot of notes. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I was on uh, Amazon later that day trying to price out some of these radar guns because I really love that idea of being able to quantify your velocity training with medicine balls. I do a ton of medicine ball training at my gym, and it's not just for power development. I use it a lot for movement capacity and movement development as well. But man, my wheels were really spinning as we are going through this episode and I hope you enjoyed it as well. 
So if you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor. If you know a coach, a trainer, a rehab professional, an athlete that plays a rotational sport and would like to improve their rotational power, please take two seconds out of your day and pass this along to them. I would love to get this show into as many hands as possible and just make more and more people aware of all the tools we have at our disposal for improving rotational power. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care. Ah!